remember that coffee. Good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Pediatric Grand Rounds for February 4th, 2015. Good morning, welcome. So I want to announce a, uh, an addition to the schedule. Next week, Dr. Brian O'Sullivan will be speaking, uh, our new pediatric pulmonologist and professor of pediatrics. We'll be talking about the perils of um, pharmaceutical marketing. I think it'll be an interesting talk um, from an ethical perspective, as he's also an ethicist. Today we are really excited and thrilled to welcome a visiting professor uh, that Dr. Chapman will introduce. Uh, our visiting professor is part of the Leonard Rome Catch Visiting Professorships from the American Academy of Pediatrics, and therefore is not just providing grand rounds, but is uh, uh, been visiting the community and visited with our residents yesterday and we'll be visiting with our faculty as well at noon today. The purpose of the Leonard P. Rome Community Access to Child Health Visiting Professorship Program is to promote child advocacy uh, and advance the field of community pediatrics. The program is implemented through a partnership between CATCH, Community Access to Child Health, and the Community Pediatrics Training Initiative, providing four to six accredited pediatric residency programs to fund a two to three day educational programming focusing on community pediatrics, building partnerships, and faculty development, all of which our, our speaker, our visiting professor, is helping us with over the past two days. The program is established in honor of Leonard P. Rome, MD, a pediatrician and tireless child health advocate who dedicated his life to improving children's health. His life exemplified the vision of the CATCH program that every child in every community has a medical home and other needed services to reach their optimal health and well-being. Uh, and Steve Chapman gets kudos and the ability to welcome his friend, Dr. Hoffman, because he, he advocated successfully for us to join Phoenix Children's Hospital, Texas Tech's Health Science Center, University of California, San Francisco at Fresno, UT Southwest Austin, and Western Michigan University as one of the recipients of Rome visiting professorships this year. So thanks and congratulations, Steve, and uh, introduce Ben. Thank you. Thank you. I also want to um, acknowledge uh, Kathy Stocker's work in, in co-authoring the grant that um, got us the Rome uh, visiting professor who's standing right next to me here. So thank you, Kathy, for your work. So it um, gives me a great pleasure to introduce um, uh, Ben Hoffman, who is the Associate Director of the American Academy of Pediatrics Community Pediatrics Training Initiative. He is also the Professor of Pediatrics and the Director of Professional Development at Dornbecker Children's Hospital and Oregon Health and Sciences University. Ben received his bachelor's from Berkeley, his MD from Harvard, and did his pediatric training out at Seattle Children's Hospital where he stayed on as chief resident for a year. Um, after residency, he went to the Gallup Indian Health Center in Gallup, New Mexico, where his passion for car seats and safeties really an obsession, let's call it an obsession, really began to blossom. He was chief of medical and dental staff there for four years. Um, after Gallup, Ben went to the University of New Mexico where he was the residency director for eight years. He mentored and advised seven successful catch grants um, during his time there. He also was the advisor on a project, a resident project that was called Using the Power of Soccer to Fight AIDS in Zimbabwe by a resident there named Tommy Clark, who now runs grassroots soccer here at Dartmouth. That was a resident project. Um, ben has received multiple teaching awards, including the Walt Tunnison Award for Extraordinary and Innovative Contribution in Resident Education from the Association of Pediatric Program Directors. Um, he is also the Tom Sargent Safety Center Director and has conducted and run over 100 car seat clinics and courses. So it gives me great pleasure to welcome Ben Hoffman. I also had the pleasure of having Steve Chapman as my assistant chief resident during my first two months of chief. I, if anybody wants stories afterward <laughs> to share. Uh, it's, it's really an incredible privilege and an honor to be here today, um, being able to, to participate in activities through the Community Feeds Training Initiative is one of the things that brings me the most joy in my career as just doing car seat stuff. Um, so the chance to bring that together uh, is really a thrill. I don't know how many people have ever had the chance to come out to Portland and see Dornbecker Children's. 
But if you haven't, uh, this is a picture of what it looks like. <laughs> there, it's, it's the only vegan free-range children's hospital. <laughs> um, in trying to think about how to sell child passenger safety as a topic to pediatricians, I struggle. I think pediatricians acknowledge that it's important, but a lot of us don't. It, it's hard to put butts in the seats for a talk about car seats. So I've struggled with trying to how to how to make it sexy and how to make it exciting. So this was my first idea. <laughs> and as I was going through the process of putting this together, my wife reminded me that I, I really am not allowed to sing in public. So I promised her, I swore to her, I would not sing. So then trying to think about how you make the story compelling, it occurred to me, just make it a story. Tell the story of how a pediatrician can become a more effective community advocate and maybe things will work. So I've entitled it Confessions of a Car Seat Junkie. The subtitle is How Do You Engage Your Community to Make a Difference? And there are a lot of people in this room who, work at, are, who are working at engaging with the community. Um, for you, I don't think what I'm going to be talking about today will come as a surprise. I don't have an MPH. I left residency, was a chief resident, went into practice with the Indian Health Service in a very rural community, which I'll tell you about. And I made a ton of mistakes trying to figure out how I would, how I would be able to make a difference. And so what I'm going to tell you is the story of those mistakes and what I learned. Here are my objectives. I'm hoping by the end of this talk, you'll be able to discuss the role of physicians in community-based advocacy, how, how community-based programs can impact community health. We'll do that through the frame of 10 basic principles um, that can be incorporated by an advocate, whether you're a physician or a community health worker or a public health person. Um, to, more, to effectively work with communities. We're going to do that in the context of um, my experience developing and implementing a, a program to increase child passenger safety restraint use. So as with any good story, you got to get them from the beginning, especially with millennial learners. We know you got maybe 30 seconds from the start of your talk to drag people in before they decide whether they're going to engage with their iPad or their phone or whatever. So I'm going to share with you my dramatic opening. What's the leading cause of death in the United States for adults? I know, it's a room of pediatricians. It always takes a sec. <laughs> Heart disease, right? Imagine you wake up tomorrow morning, and this is the front page in the New York Times, that we figured it out, that they've, they've got an $80 easily available, completely safe therapy that will decrease the risk of death by the leading cause to adults, 50 to 70%. Pretty great, right? All right. Now we're going to introduce the villain in our story. And our villain is an epidemic. It's an epidemic that every day kills six kids in the United States. More kids than all other causes combined, and yet receives very little attention compared to the magnitude of the problem. And that epidemic is not H1N1. It's not even measles. It's injury. If you look at data from this, this is data taken from the CDC, at the leading causes of death between 2000 and 2012, this is the last year that, that the CDC has the data available at this point, this is what kills kids. I will point out that these two high pieces, comprising 36% of all deaths, those are unintentional injuries. Those are quote unquote accidents. But if you break those out further and you separate out falls and drownings and accidental gunshots and, and kids run over by cars backing out. And you just look at kids who died as passengers in vehicles that were moving at the time of their death, 16%. These are deaths from cancer. For the residents in the room, how much time during your training do you spend learning about taking care of kids with cancer? Fair amount. How much time have you spent learning about the leading cause of death? Like maybe an hour, we got a lecture, or is, is this it? <laughs> Sometimes it is. What I, I will introduce over the, I, I promised people over the course of two days I was going to introduce a lot of my favorite quotes. This is one of my favorite quotes from the great C. Everett Koop, former Surgeon General, that if the disease were killing our kids at the rates that injuries are, the public would demand that the killer be stopped. So six kids every day from unintentional injuries 3.7 kids a day on average die as passengers in motor vehicles. So yesterday, about four kids died. Today, about four kids are going to die. Tomorrow, 
about four kids are going to die. And we've accepted that as the price of doing business in 2015. I'm not okay with that. There's our villain. Now we're going to introduce the hero. And like many good heroes, they don't always look like you expect the hero's going to look, if you look at Jack-Jack there. What is our hero? The lowly car seat. <laughs> Boring, hard to use, not something that people get excited about, but incredibly powerful. This is what car seats can do. So risk of death, risk of serious injury in a crash. So for, for, little, for infants under a year, decrease of death, de Decreased risk of death by about 70%. For older kids, decreased risk of death by about 50%. And then you can look at what happens to injury rates for kids who survive in terms of severe injuries. We don't have, so I, we have that $80 easily available, not so easy to use, but usable thing that will decrease the risk of death by the leading cause 50 to 70%. All right. What about older kids? Kids four to eight, if you take them from nothing and put them in a seatbelt, you'll decrease the risk of death by about 40%. You take them out of the seatbelt, put them in a booster seat, you decrease the risk of death by another 60%. The bottom line is booster seats are just as effective for appropriately sized and aged kids as a car seat is for a baby. Now, sadly, like most good heroes, there is a dark side. <laughs> and that dark side is apparent to anybody who's ever tried to put in a car seat. Let me see show of hands and whoever tried to put in a car seat. Who found it easy and enjoyable? <laughs> Who's, how many people with these guys accepted have ever taken their car seat to, a, to an inspection station and had a certified tech? How many of you had done it right? <laughs> exactly. And we know, we know this to be true. Everybody who's ever done a car seat, anybody who's ever spent time at a car seat check knows this. So this is data. Sadly, this data is a, it's a little outdated. The last real good data we have is from 2004. But this was a survey across six states looking at how families use their car seats. And overall, the misuse rate is, is about three quarters. If you just look at this specific type of seat, rear-facing infant seats, whether both um, rear-facing only and convertible seats, about 84% misused in some way that would increase the risk of injury to the child. And it gets easier, to, a little bit easier to use as you go up in age. But bottom line is they're hard to use. So it's not a perfect hero. Now I'm going to introduce to you the setting. The setting for our story is beautiful Gallup, New Mexico. How many people in this room have ever visited beautiful Gallup, New Mexico? How many people just, uh, yeah, you guys don't count. <laughs> Steve and Kathy. How many people have ever stopped in, New in Gallup, New Mexico? How many people have ever spent more than a couple of hours in Gallup, New Mexico? Yeah? Did you used to live there? No, I was um, going around giving talks on medical education. Oh, excellent. So generally, the response I would get from people who know that I lived in Gallup was, you live there? It's not a very easy place to live, necessarily. This is where Gallup is. So this is, this is New Mexico, Arizona, Utah, Colorado. It's just on the, the Arizona-New Mexico border, about 90 miles south of the Four Corners. Um, this, is, this is a little bit of a blow-up of the area. And what I want to point out is that everything that's lighter here is the Navajo Nation. So this is the south, southeast corner of the Navajo Nation. Um, the Zuni Pueblo is a half an hour south. And Gallup itself is a little island that sort of sits among um, sovereign nation land uh, from the Navajo Nation and several of the Pueblos. Um, bigger picture about Navajo. So the Navajo Nation is about the size of Connecticut. It spans um, most of western New Mexico and eastern Arizona all the way to the Grand Canyon. It's divided up into seven different service units, which are denoted by the different colors. And there are, there are Indian Health Service hospitals in six of these, Gallup, Crown Point, Shiprock, Chinle, Fort Defiance, and Tuba City. Gallup is the largest medical center on the entire Navajo Reservation. And it served as a, as a referral center for most of the eastern part of the res. Um, the population of the Navajo Nation is about 250,000 spread over this, um, this area the size of the state of, uh, of Connecticut. And when I talk about the Navajo Nation, 
And you think about the area where Monument Valley is up here, Canyon de Chez is right here, the Grand Canyon is right here. It's some of the most beautiful country you will ever see. And this is what people think about when I, talk, when, when I mention Navajo. And what we have here is Monument Valley. This is the Ship Rock in the Four Corners. This is Church Rock in Gallup, which is about five minutes from where we used to live. Absolutely gorgeous. And so driving in, I remember driving from Seattle and just being blown away at the countryside. But what I found in Gallup was this. These are the families for the, this is the community with whom we worked. Um, there are a couple of really interesting things about Gallup itself. Gallup, Gallup is a town of about 17,000. And about a third of the population is Caucasian, a third of the population is Hispanic, a third of the population is Native American. It's the county seat for McKinley County, which has about 55,000 people in it in that area of, of western New Mexico. <laughs> Um, about 45% of kids in our county lived under the poverty line. Um, and um, interestingly, Gallup itself, when we lived there, had the greatest proportion of millionaires per capita of anywhere in the world. I know, it's crazy. And if you looked at who the millionaires were, they were the, the guys who owned the payday loan places, and they were the car dealers who charged 40% interest on car loans and the um, trading post owners, who basically ran pawn shops. Um, so there's a tremendous amount of disparity. And I said that the population of Gallup was about 17,000. This would be on a Tuesday. If you went on a Saturday, specifically the first Saturday of the month, there would be over 100,000 people in town, because the entire reservation would pour in to do shopping and their laundry, go to a movie, go to the flea market, that sort of thing. Um, and that created, a, as I'll mention, a tremendous um, amount of difficulty in terms of thinking about providing services. Of my patients, when I, when I was working in Gallup, about half of them had electricity, which meant half of my patients did not even have access to electricity. This was in the day when we treated bronchiolitis with albuterol, and if it wasn't working, you used more albuterol. And they all went home with nebulizers. And couldn't do that if they didn't have electricity. So half had electricity, 20% had running water. 80% of the families we worked with didn't even have running water. And only 5%, and granted this was the early part of the 90s, 5% had access to a telephone on a regular basis. So just to put that in context, I got in the Indian Health Service because I was interested in international health. Um, and, I did, and once I realized that the third world was in my backyard because I grew up in New Mexico, I felt like I wanted to do something. So I'm gonna, this, this is a picture of the Gallup Indian Medical Center. And I'm going to take you back to the winter of 1996. We started there in October of 1995. So this was the next winter. It was built in 1961 by the federal government. And it looks exactly like you would expect a hospital built in 1961 by the federal government to look. Um, this, was the, this was the entrance from the parking lot. And there was a period of about six months after we got there that we weren't allowed to use that entrance because concrete was falling off of the side of the building. And it literally would take an act of Congress to get it fixed. Right? You know how everything looks better in retrospect? So evidently, so do I. <laughs> this, this, this is the emergency room in the Gallup Indian Medical Center. And this is the trauma bay. These are the Braslow, this is all the Braslow stuff. So the winter of 1996, I got called in on five consecutive call nights. So that's basically over the course of a month, to that bay to help care for a child who was critically injured in a car crash. One of them died. Four of them made it to the trauma center in Albuquerque. Every one of those kids was 100% unrestrained at the time of their injury. And I got pissed off. Five straight nights, kid died. Four went to Albuquerque. I got angry. Which brings us to rule number one in terms of thinking about how you become an effective community advocate is that you have to find the problem. And the problem is either going to be based on something you're so excited about or so angry about that you're ready to go to the mat for it. And one of the things I struggle with in working with residents, especially in curricula where we have defined periods of time, is it's really hard to force somebody to, come, to become passionate about something. You really have to wait until the problem finds you. And if I talk to people in this room about what you do, and talk to Steve Chapman about fluoride, that problem found him. So 
What was my problem? I started noticing after these five call nights, every place I went in Gallup, this is all I would see. This actually is a picture from Gallup, back when the day when they had TGNY. <laughs> this kid, sitting where I used to sit when I was a kid, right, where your only form of restraint was this. All I saw anywhere were unrestrained kids in cars. And I decided if they were going to show up in my emergency department and we're going to have to take care of them, and this was there, somebody needed to do something. And I looked around and realized nobody was doing anything. So here I was, pediatrician, first year out from residency, and I had a problem. Imagine if a time machine showed up tomorrow and said, I will take you anywhere in history to meet with anybody you would want, but you got one chance. Where would you start? And you can sit here and say, oh, I would go talk to Napoleon. And then you think, oh, no, do I want to waste that on Napoleon? Right? It's, it's, a, it's potentially really daunting. Where do you start? Brings us to rule number two, which is you have to define the baseline. Because what you see may not truly be the reality. Just because I had a bad couple of call nights and I thought I was seeing a bunch of unrestrained kids didn't mean that that was really a problem. So I started to look at what the background was. And I thought the background has to, it, it has to be related to the law. Because I know there's a car seat law in, in New Mexico. I have no idea what it was. Here's what the car seat law was in the state of New Mexico between 1990 and 2001. And I know it's a little bit busy. What I will point out is this. Zero to one, kids had to be in a rear-facing car seat. Right? We would agree that's a good thing. Look what happens at one, however. It says car safety seat or seatbelt. And what that meant was that two weeks after this photo was taken, this would have been legal. So clearly, the law was not going to be, it was not an ideal law. And I thought, you know, being somebody brand new in a new state, this law has to change. I had no idea how we were going to do that. Put that on the docket, something we got to do, but that's not something I can fight right now. So I thought, <laughs> think about my community, right? what I told you about, about the socioeconomic status. Why do you think kids in Gallup were not using car seats? What do you think the reasons might be? All right, finances are probably going to be a huge barrier. It wasn't their car. Pardon? It wasn't their car. It may not be their car. Right? Because hey, we know lower socioeconomic status communities tend not to drive the newest, best equipped vehicles. Family a lot of pick them up trucks. Sorry? Family and social pressure not to. Okay, family and social pressure not to. And what? They just don't know. They just don't know. How fun are car seats to use? Right? <laughs> I, I did not believe that it was because people were being chased by the paparazzi at Starbucks. <laughs> that, that I did not think our problem was. So. I decided we needed to look at it to figure out really what the issue was. So I was able, with my colleagues, to put together a survey of families who were born at our hospital. We had one of the benefits we had is we had sort of a captive population. They were born at our hospital. They came back to see us for well child checks. And we did our first well child check at six weeks just because of the way the system worked. So we, between January and June, we did a survey. We had, 108, we had 117 babies born in the hospital. We got 117 babies who completed the survey. Actually, the babies didn't complete the survey. <laughs> the moms completed the survey um, at their six-week check. So we had 100% compliance. We found 116 had a car seat. One did not. We got them a car seat. So the problem was not that they didn't have them, which is what I would have thought. They couldn't access them. They weren't using them. So then we also asked a question about where they got the car seat, because my assumption would be that they were going to have trouble getting it. This is where they told us they got their car seats. So about 20% of them said they got it as a gift or they got it secondhand. Somebody gave it to them, which was fine. Um, about a third of them got them from a hospital-based program, which I didn't even know existed. And the rest of them bought them, which I found shocking. We also asked them, if you, if, what do you think about using your car seat? And they told us that the barriers, the hardest things for them were the things that you brought up, that it takes space in the car. And especially for a poorer family living 60 miles away, what would tend to happen is everybody bundles into the car. right? And if you have a choice between grandma and the car seat, 
grandma is going to win, and the car seat goes on grandma's lap. That they were expensive, and as everybody knows, they were hard to use. So if the question, if the issue was not that they didn't have them and they weren't using them, I felt like we needed to define what the rates of use were. My anecdotal experience was people weren't using them. We needed to find out for sure. So in order to find out, we had to do some observational studies. Right? We needed to go out and actually look. And if you're going to look at whether people are using car seats, you have to go where people are. And if you're in Gallup, New Mexico, this is where people are. Between, between 1990 and 2000, this was the, the Gallup, New Mexico Walmart was the second busiest store in the entire Walmart universe. <laughs> Insane. If you went, so you could go on any day of the week and stand in line to get a gallon of milk behind somebody who had flowers and a sheep gate to prevent their sheep from getting out and a gun and a pound and a half of mutton to make stew. And if you went on a Saturday afternoon, you would wait in line 45 minutes to be able to do that. The other beautiful thing about Walmart, other than that's where people went, was that there was a four-way stop sign in front of the entrance so that everybody going into Walmart had to stop. So it seemed to me that would be a good place to go and look. So in, the, in December of 1998, I went out with a stepladder and a big blue puffy down coat, because Gallup is at 7,000 feet above sea level. And it was about 15 degrees. I know for you guys, that's warm. <laughs> and a, and a, a clipboard and a piece of paper. And I stood at the intersection and looked in every car for four hours. I did not get shot. I did have things thrown at me, both epithets and trash. Uh, but no, no, I, there was no damage done other than some chapped lips. Over the course of those two four-hour observations, I went back two consecutive weekends, I saw 324 cars. In those cars were 390 kids. And I excluded anybody who was in the back of a pickup truck, because there wasn't a chance that they were going to be restrained. <laughs> These were just kids who were either in the cabs of pickups or in the passenger compartment of a regular vehicle. And what I discovered was that what I was seeing was not an illusion. The overall restraint race rate was 29% which was significantly worse than anything that I had seen in the published literature, although not a surprise to me. So what I my, my impression was true. How do you translate that then? So we did have a problem. Like art, revolutions come from combining what exists into what has never existed before. Summer of 1985, how many people remember New Coke? <laughs> Right. Any of the residents ever heard of New Coke? <laughs> exactly. So 1985, they decided, we have a brilliant idea. We're just going to change everything. We're going to reformulate it. We're going to take the old stuff off the market. People are going to eat this up. They spent $40 million in a marketing campaign. And six months later, could you find New Coke? No, it was gone, dead to the world. This debacle was only slightly more expensive and slightly longer of a disaster than this debacle. <laughs> Just to put it in, in sort of historical context, right? Which brings us to rule number three. You don't want to recreate other people's mistakes. You don't want to go to the community and say, hey, I reformulated Coke. You should love this and bring them something they don't want. So in order to make sure you don't do that, I wanted to look into what's already known about in getting people to use car seats, because I was certain that people have already looked into it. Um, and along those lines, I made a note to myself in terms of not recreating mistakes. Don't ever do outdoor research in Gallup in December, <laughs> just like you wouldn't want to do it in Hanover. So I had to look into injury prevention principles, because I really didn't know anything, because I was never taught. I mean, I was taught, I had maybe a lecture in medical, in, in medical school and maybe some, a little bit in residency about how you prevent injuries. And this is what I learned. You can persuade people to do things, or you can try and persuade people to do things. You can require them to do things through development laws and enforcement, or you can do things that automatically protect them. And I've highlighted what people normally call the, th the, the, the four E's or the four E's in an I, education, enforcement, environment, and engineering. As far as environment and engineering, I'm sure there were things that could be done in intersections and Gallup and things with lighting and all that that could decrease the risk of car crashes. 
but that was, those were not things that, that existed within my universe. There's not much I've been able to do. I mentioned about our law and how crappy it was, and we thought maybe there was more, even though we don't have a great law, we could do more to enforce it, and maybe that would change things. So I'm going to put that on the list. But I thought the thing that we could really bring to the table were changes in education and providing some incentives to do the right thing. So looking into what's known about this, about enforcement, if you make people an offer they can't refuse, it turns out that effective laws that are enforced are probably the best tool we have for getting people to change their behaviors around injury prevention activities, period, specifically with car seats. And the data shows that you can increase rates by 10 to 50%, and those changes tend to be durable. They, they persist over time as long as there's enforcement. If you add an education campaign around the, the enforcement activities, you can get another 5 to 10% bump. So it seemed like something we would want to put some of our stock into. What about education? If you look in the car seat literature, there are really three types of interventions that have been described. Um, Peripartum programs, so talking with moms before delivery and working with them around delivery. There's a small effect, about 10 to 15%, but anybody who's ever had a baby knows it's not the best time to learn something. <laughs> um, media and community-based campaigns where you, where you provide educational uh, uh, information and, and saturate media and that sort of stuff, again, about 5 to 15%. My favorite way to do it, and these are based on studies that were done in New Zealand, and basically what they did is they took a bunch of preschools and randomized them, and at half, the, half the preschools they met with parents, and they had interventions with parents around car seats. The other half, they met with the kids, and they basically said, you need to bug your parents to put you in your car seat, because if they don't do it, they don't love you. <laughs> Guess who was more likely to be using car seats after the intervention? The daycare kids. Yeah, it's awesome. Anybody who's ever driven by a McDonald's with a child understands that principle. Um, so education can be effective, but it certainly wasn't going to be enough. What about incentive? What about if you reward people for doing the right thing? So around injury prevention behaviors, you can see an increase, about 15 to 20%. The problem is once you stop incentivizing and once you saturate that market, it goes back to pre-program levels within about six months. This seems like something we might want to think about, but not where we're going to put all of our eggs. Rule number four, always assume that somebody way smarter than you has already looked into your problem. Because until you spread your wings, you'll have no idea how far you can walk. <laughs> This was the assumption that somebody in our community, we had a car seat program at my hospital, I didn't even know about it. Right? There, there must be things that already exist that we could partner with. The difference between stupidity and genius is that genius has its limits. <laughs> this is the pessimist mug. This line defines when it's half empty. That's how a lot of people look at community health, is that we have problems, and we have problems upon problems and more problems. The principle of asset-based community development. I had no idea what this meant. I didn't know that this was do what, what we were doing. But we decided to take the glasses half full approach and say, what do we have? What potential resources and allies do we have in our, that might already exist that can help us with this problem? And I found two people, or two groups. One was there actually was an injury prevention program in the Indian Health Service that I also didn't know existed. And I made a phone call to them. And I said, I'm interested in doing something about car seats. And they said, that's awesome. And they sent me a guy, a guy named Brian Rock, who was a, a field sanitarian, who also had some interest in car seats, and he became my partner in crime. I also found out a place called, about a nonprofit that was based in Santa Fe, in the capital, called Safer New Mexico. Now, what Safer did was all of this stuff. They ran the New Mexico Safe Kids Coalition. They were responsible for the car seat distribution program that existed in my own hospital. They had a ton of educational resources, including a warehouse in Santa Fe that had a million pieces of educational information that they would send me for free to, to distribute to families. They had a ton of expertise in putting programs together, and they were responsible for the child passenger safety training program in the state of New Mexico. I called them up on a Tuesday and said, hi, my name is Ben Hoffman, I'm a pediatrician in Gallup. And they said, wait, you're in Gallup? I said, yeah. I said, you're a pediatrician? Yeah, I said, I'm driving through Gallup tomorrow. We're going to go get a cup of coffee. So we met and had a cup of coffee. And he said, we have been dying for somebody out here. We will give you whatever you need. You need to come and get certified as a technician. And we'll take care of all this stuff for you. And a beautiful relationship was born. I, you know, weeks before, I hadn't even known they existed. 
Anybody know who this is? I know I'm dating myself. <laughs> that is Millie Vanilli. And it is not just Millie Vanilli. What are they holding? It's Millie Vanilli with their Grammy Awards. All right? the residents in the back, you know the story of Millie Vanilli? <laughs> All right. So I'm going to introduce you. What? They even know Millie I'm getting nods. I don't think anybody would admit it. Basically, they lip synced. They won Grammys, but they lip synced. And sadly, this guy committed suicide. Right, it did not end well. This brings us to rule 4A, which is the Millie Vanilli principle, which is the idea that your best idea, like, hey, let's form a band, but we can't sing. <laughs> your best idea may not be your best idea. And you need to be very conscious of what the needs of the community are, because we sit here at an academic medical center, and we think we know what the community needs, right? Don't assume you know what the community needs. The community knows what they need, and, and it's really important for us to engage with them because their priorities may be totally different, and it's completely ineffective and perhaps even dangerous for us to impose our will upon them. We think this is what you should do. I'm a doctor, trust me. It doesn't work well. I introduce this because at some point in our story, the Milli Vanilli effect is going to come back to bite us in the butt just to keep you interested. All right. In putting together a team, you need to make sure that you have the right people to do the right part of the job. Right? Any good team is only as effective as the power of their members. And so in building a coalition, you need to know who you're getting involved and you need to know who needs to be a part and everybody needs to know what their roles are. There's one person on this slide that you would call if your car was broken down. Right? And if it's this guy, you might get your dishes crystal clean in your Chevrolet, but it's not going to get you where you need to go. So in terms of thinking about who you might need to know, you need to build that right team. You need to think about people who are going to help you plan, people who have expertise at the local, regional, national level, and also representatives of the community to help bring the community voice to bear. And then you need people to implement. And these are not always the same people. They may be. But you need people who are going to sort of help guide you over the long term to be your board of directors, to help, to help look at things from the 30,000-foot view. Because sometimes there are, you know, not, not infrequently, there are thinkers and there are doers. And the thinkers are not always great doers, and the doers are not always great thinkers. So getting the right people together. You also need to be very aware of who's going to fight you, because it might be your dad. <laughs> your enemies may come out of the woodwork, and you, if you don't anticipate who they're going to be and have an idea about how you're going to counter it and deal with that from the beginning, they will win. And people will fight you over the stupidest things, especially power and turf. Money, I mean, I, I get money, but power, turf, hubris, an incredible, an incredible actor in this process. So small rural community, who do we need to get involved in our coalition? Who do you think, who would, if you were building a car seat coalition, in a small rural community, who would you want involved? Walmart. Walmart? Awesome. Daycares. Daycares? Right. Where are the kids? Community leaders. Community leaders? Used car dealers. Used car dealers? Brilliant. Especially because they have money. Who else? Parents? Yeah, you gotta get the you gotta get the tribe involved. So one of the, one of the particular, uh, I'll bring this up in a sec about the, the, the different jurisdictions. So this is the Gallup Fire Department. This is Gallup Police Department. This is who we came up with. List very similar to yours. If we were going to get people together and we are going to do something, we needed to have a game plan. You can't just go and say, hey, we have an idea. Now, engaging all of these folks to help us with the game plan was not, was not a dumb idea. That was smart. But we went in and said, we want to work on car seat stuff. Let's collaborate. We were very clear, and I think this is an important thing, and, and it's difficult for a lot of people to remember to do this step because it's very time consuming and it can be complex. But really defining what you're trying to do, what you're trying to achieve, and what drives you, and what's important to you. And I think this needs to be a self-conscious process. Um, 
I would advise, you know, as you're thinking about goals and objectives to make sure that they're outcomes oriented, you're thinking about what you want, what you want the world to look like at the, at the point when you're done. But you need to be adaptable because, again, the voice of the community may be different than what you think it's going to be. So for us, our goal was this. And when we were done playing soccer, this is what we decided we wanted to do. So our goal was to increase the availability and use of car seats in our community. We wanted to use it uh, to, to do that using a community-based approach to injury prevention, and we wanted to use uh, we wanted to use that as a springboard to build a bigger coalition to work on other unintentional injuries. Because we knew the car seat that, that motor vehicle crashes are not the only thing that impacted our community. Sorry about that. Screw that up. So getting back then to the, the three things we thought about, about enforcement, education, and incentive, what potentially could we do? So this is a picture of a, of a real-life Gallup police officer dealing with a drunk driver. Gallup was really unique in terms of law enforcement jurisdictions. There was the Gallup City Police, the McKinley County Sheriff, the New Mexico State Police, and the Navajo Police. Now, state police, county sheriff, city police, could not do anything on the reservation because reservation land was sovereign. And remember I showed you that Gallup itself was sort of an island. Um, federal, a state highway that ran through reservation land was fair game for the state police only. But if somebody got off of the highway, they were no longer, they were only, they were, the only jurisdiction that could deal with them would be the Navajo police. So we had four different agencies and those agencies did not play nicely together. So I went and had, I, I had meetings with the Gallup Police Department, with McKinley County Sheriff, and the State Police. I never in four years got a call back from Navajo Police. Even after engaging other members of the tribe and our tribal health council to try and, and connect me with them, they had no interest. Part of the reason they had no interest and part of the reason that I had such a difficult time engaging the police, the police jurisdictions at all, is that their biggest issue was DWI. And that's where all the money for enforcement was. When I met with Gallup Police, they told me that in the year prior to my meeting with them, they had actually, that the four jurisdictions within McKinley County had actually given out over 1,000 citations for restraint non-use. So this was adult and kids. But for people not using car seats or seatbelts, they'd given out over 1,000 citations. It's three a day, which I thought was pretty impressive. The problem was they were so busy and so understaffed that 80% of those citations got dismissed because nobody could go to court. None of the police officers could go to court. And everybody in the community, evidently, although I didn't knew this, so that the enforcement was not enforcement. We had a crappy law. We had crappy enforcement. Gallup police, however, and, and, and the state police said, when you get something together, let us know how we can help. We just can't do more than we're doing now. All right? So we put that aside. Looking at an education campaign, we decided we needed to have a logo and we needed to be visible. And so this is our logo, this was our name. And people look at that name and say, that's stupid because you just stole from Got Milk. And we said, yes, yes, we did. But what's our name? And they would say, Got Belts. And that's stupid because you stole it from Got Milk. And we say, yes, but what's our name? <laughs> One of the things that was really important to us was that we wanted to be culturally sensitive, meaning we needed to address the needs of the Navajo community, which were different than the needs of the Zuni Pueblo community, which were different than the needs and the, and the beliefs of the Hispanic community and of the Anglo community. But we were, we were adamant that this was not going to be a Navajo problem, and this was not going to be a Hispanic problem. This was a Gallup problem. Um, and so we wanted to be sensitive to the needs of those communities, but not specific in any way, shape, or form. We specifically did not collect any sort of demographic, racial, ethnic data when we were doing the observations, even though I could have made a guess, because we didn't want, we didn't want to know. Right? And what I can tell you anecdotally is I saw just as many white kids unrestrained as I saw Navajo kids. Um, as far as incentive, throwing people a carrot, we wanted to make it easier to own car seats because I knew even if people were buying them, it was a, you know it's still expensive, and people didn't have money, so we could make it easier. And we knew we wanted to try and make it easier to use because everybody who had installed a car seat knew exactly what you guys knew. Okay, so putting together a coalition, we got the fire department, and the fire department came on board and said, "Yeah, we'll do this totally because we have to scoop those patients, you know, those kids up, and we hate it. But when we're done with this, you're going to help us with a fire prevention program, right?" 
Sure, totally. We got the state police involved. We got the Gallup police involved. Um, and then I went out to build the brand through a schmoozerama, right? Going and meeting with community-based organizations and going to meeting with Head Start and preschools and all that sort of stuff. And one day, one of the nurses in the emergency department, who is a former army medic, heard about what we were doing. And he said, this is great. I'm with Kiwanis. You should come talk to us. I said, cool, I'll come talk to you. So they invited me. I went to a lunch meeting. I gave them my dog and pony show about statistics and what we knew and all this sort of stuff. And at the end, they handed me a check for 300 bucks. Right. And said, do something good with this. And let us know how we can help. And I thought, that's awesome. We have something now. We're being recognized. And of course, in a small town, if you speak at Kiwanis, and you get invited to speak at Rotary. So I went and spoke at Rotary. And at the end, I didn't get a check. But I got a bunch of business cards from people, including a guy named Sammy C, who came up and handed me his business card. He said, I own the six radio stations in Gallup. If you ever need anything, give me a call. <laughs> All right, file that away next to the check. That's great. Who said Walmart before? All right. So within a 90-mile radius of the city of Gallup, there were two places to buy car seats. One was here, which was Walmart, and the other was here, which was Kmart. I went and talked to Kmart first. And I met with the manager, and he told me he'd talk to corporate, and he'd get back to me, and two weeks later hadn't, and four weeks later hadn't. I called him again, and he said, eh, never happened. Then I went to Walmart, sat down with the manager in the radio cafe over a really bad cup of coffee, and I said, we want to do something to increase car seat use. He said, that's great. I got an idea. What about if we sold car seats here at cost through a coupon program? And I said, I love you. <laughs> and he said, we'll, we'll pick one of each. We'll pick, pick an infant seat, a convertible seat, and a booster seat. And let's go back to the baby section. And I'll meet, introduce the manager. We'll just keep a pallet here all the time. And if you handle the coupon part, we'll take care of everything else. And I said, I love you. <laughs> and he said, and then our parking lot, we can, we'll give you part of the parking lot. How about we can do events on Saturdays, and we'll do a radio remote, and we'll bring out the hot dog machine. And, and I said, Love you. Um, and so this is what we did. We put together a coupon program. This was the retail price of the seats. This is what we were able to sell them for. We kept track of every single coupon, where, it was, where, where we distributed it, um, and then every one that got redeemed. So we, we, we collected all of that data. Rule number seven, if you get invited to Thanksgiving dinner, and you're asked to bring something, you got to make sure you bring the right thing. Being invited to this dinner, knowing what to bring, is very different than if you get invited to this dinner. <laughs> so you have to be really clear about which dinner you're going to. If we were going to bring something to the community, we needed to bring something to them that they were going to use, that was going to be useful to them. And the thing that we felt would be most useful, especially based upon our experience as parents, was expertise. Car seats are hard to use. If we could make it easier, we would try. So in the summer of 1997, I went to Albuquerque and spent four days getting trained in the NHTSA standard uh, child passenger safety technician training. I was the first pediatrician in the state of New Mexico ever to get certified. This was a look on that kid's face when I told him it took me four days to learn how to <laughs> But I got certified, and then I came back, and I said, I know what we got to do. We have to have a certification training here in Gallup. We need to have our coalition certified. And so March of 1998, we got that done. I got, we got Safer New Mexico now to come out to Gallup. This is Vera Benali, who's a community health rep from the Navajo Nation. This is a Gallup city police officer. We got 27 technicians certified over the course of four days in this town of 17,000. And Safe Kids said at that point, we had that, in addition to having the highest per capita millionaires, we had the highest per capita child pastor safety technicians. <laughs> and this really galvanized us, which led us to rule number eight, which is now we were finally ready to start working our butts off. So I had gotten pissed off in the winter of 1996. We're now into 1999, which was a hard thing for me to do because I had spent a lot of time, and anybody who's been involved with communities, you want to get things done, but you have to move at the speed of the community. So. The plot thickens. We started to do things, really putting together, putting together a combination of education, incentives, and, and enforcement. Here's what it looked like. All right? 300 bucks from Kiwanis, here was our great idea. 
We knew that enforcement was the biggest stick, but we knew that our law enforcement was tapped out. So we thought, how can we help law enforcement? We sat down with Gallup police and we said, all right, what about, this whole thing started because I got pissed off seeing unrestrained kids. What about if I brought the unrestrained kids to you guys? If I wrote down the license plate of the car, could you give me information and then we could reach out to that family? And they said, yeah, sure, we could do that. We, we can make that happen. So we used our 300 bucks to make these pads and we distributed them widely among our coalition. Where are you and what are you doing when you see an unrestrained kid riding in a car? You're driving. Not easy to remember a license plate, not advisable to write it down. I got more citations from the internal medicine docs at my own institution about their colleagues' ties than we did uh, these from the coalition. We actually got 30 back. We sent out letters. We put together this beautiful packet with a letter written from the kid, dear mom and or dad. I was seen riding in a car without a car seat. If you really love me, you'd do better. <laughs> and then we had a little footprint on the bottom. It was super cute. We sent out 30 of those packets. We got back five or six phone calls, like black helicopters, government. Uh, um, and, a couple, and five families actually came in, and we got them car seats. But this is what I thought we were going to be writing up and what I'd be talking about today. Totally didn't work. It, just, it, was, not, it was not effective. But it did lay the foundation for legislative advocacy, which led to, to, law, legislate, to changes to the law in 2001 and 2004. We got a grant from the Indian Health Service for 5,000 um, bucks. And we found a company in Albuquerque that had billboards on the four roads into and out of Gallup, mostly to, to the reservation that never sold, because they were the same billboards constantly. And what that company did is they sold those billboards for 1,200 bucks, and they said, for 1200 bucks, we'll put up whatever you want, and it'll stay there until someone else wants it. These were up for like six years. <laughs> so it just had, this was, we didn't have access to internet. Our families didn't have access to internet, so there wasn't a website, right? But just our information was there. Um, we, used some, we used some of the 300 bucks to make bumper stickers so that everybody that we met with that allowed us to, we put a bumper sticker on their car. We got handouts, educational packets, into everywhere we could think kids were going to be including our hospital, the other hospital, the public health clinic. We got the billboards up. I took out my card, Sammy C, and said, we're going to start doing stuff. And he said, that's awesome. You want to come down and record some public service announcements? I said, well, I'll help you write some public service announcements. And he said, OK, come down. So we went down. And he and I wrote public service announcements, and he made me record them. <laughs> and what he did is he would play one an hour on each of his six stations. And when we had events, which I'll talk about in a minute, he would play two an hour, one, one just a general one and one about the events. And every month, I would go down and we'd write new public service announcements and he'd put them on. It was awesome. Um, he would do the Navajo one and we had somebody who would do the Spanish one because my Navajo, no, not going to happen. Um, and we got information in the newspapers, which I'll show you in a sec. And then we started doing clinics at Walmart with my new friend Mark Walter, who was the, the manager who I love so dearly. Once a month on a Saturday in the Walmart parking lot with our 27 technicians. People knew where to find us. We would do hands-on practical teaching. We'd replace recalled seats. Um, and it was where the people were. This is, this is Frank Musitano, who is exactly he's a six-foot-four state cop who looks exactly like you'd expect Frank Musitano, shaking down this kid who it turns out was not holding, <laughs> which was good, um, at, at one of our events. We got a fair amount of press. This is the front page, like the lead story in the weekend Gallup Independent. I know, right? Um, this was in February of 1999, just getting the word out, telling, telling the community we'd found only 29% restrained, that we were doing these events, that we could do better, talking about the law and how the law was just a basic guideline and, and we could do better. I want to share with you this picture because this is one of my favorite things ever. So this is nine and a half month old luxury Irving getting strapped into her car seat because her mom loves her. Nine and a half months being strapped in her car seat. What direction is a nine and a half month old supposed to be facing? Right, and she's facing? Right, okay. And then this is the best. I don't know if it comes out here. Can you see what this is right there? It's a gun. <laughs> I know, captain safety, right? All right, know how to know if it works. If we were gonna get people to change behavior, we had to know whether it was effective or not.
Um, I'll come back to this picture in a few minutes, but the weather, was, it, it was actually very Hanover-like that day. <laughs> so I had told you, we, start, we started in 1999, in November. We held monthly clinics for a year. In the course of those 12 car seat checkups, we did 543 seats and handed out another 269 through donations that we'd gotten, some from Walmart, some from the community. So about 800 kids we interacted with. We distributed over 2,000 coupons and had 612 of them redeemed for car seats. Now, I know some of them ended up at the flea market, which I'm still okay with because I got out in the community. But that's a pretty good return on coupons. And then, because I'm an idiot, since I started in December, we, we repeated in December <laughs> to see what sort of change there was. These are the demographics for the pre- and the post-intervention survey. So the demographics were pretty similar. And here's what we saw. In the span of one year, we went from 29% to 63%. Still awful, right? But it's 37% of kids unrestrained, but a lot better. So why did it work? What was so effective? So I think one of the things, and you guys have a little bit of that benefit here, is that you've got a fairly small rural community, and it's easy to know where the people are. We knew exactly where to go. There was a limited group of players. And since I moved to Albuquerque and then Portland, I've really struggled in a larger community to find where you go. Being in a small place really helped us. The NHTSA certification, when we got everybody in the coalition certified, it was like boot camp. And everybody came out of there like, hoo-wah, ready to go. It really galvanized the group. The fact that we were regular and predictable. People knew where to find us, they knew where to go, and we had open access. I mean, we would start the, the car seat station at 9 o'clock, and by 9 o'clock, and the second time we did it, by 9 o'clock there would be at least 60 cars lined up, ready to go. The community partnerships were key, especially with Walmart and with the media. I sent six letters to Walmart corporate about the manager, about how wonderful he was. And to try and get him recognized to the company, there was nothing. There was never anything. And sadly, uh, a year after we finished this program, he died of a heart attack, which was awful. He was just a gem of a human being. I loved him. Um, and the fact that we were able to, to sustain it for a year, most community-based interventions around car seats are four months or six months. There was not a lot out there that was, that was more than that. Rule number 10, it's fun when it's new. Um, what happens in, week, in month six? When, oh, we have another car seat thing this weekend. I was going to, I haven't had a weekend in a while. I was going to go biking or. When, once the bloom comes off the rose and people start having other interests, like the firefighters started to say, all right, what about our fire prevention program? And then I got to finish. <laughs> it got complicated. This is what I felt like. Because I was a full-time pediatrician, right? Taking call one night a week and one weekend a month and, and you know, working in clinic five days a week. Um, it was a ton of work. The entire program was very personality driven. It was me and Brian who were sort of driving everything. We had coalition members who pulled their weight, but we were leading the thing. And it was incredibly time and labor intensive. I mean, it took 10, 10 technicians for every car seat event. And then I had to restock the coupons and make sure all the educational stuff was there and keep, keep things moving. So it was, it, was, it was a really difficult thing. And sadly, um, a year after I left, Brian left, and, we, and he left the coalition in the hands of the Gallup Police Department, uh, one of our partners. Um, and six months after Brian left, the officer who was in charge of Safe Kids got arrested for embezzlement, not from our program, but from some other stuff, and the coalition just died after that. Not because of our, it wasn't, we left it, we thought we left it in good hands. So before I summarize, and I do have a bang up ending, I'd like to, I, and I know I'm running a little late, I'd be delighted to take questions uh, from anybody if, they, if there's anything to discuss. All right, so I, I'll stick around if there are questions afterwards. Let me, just, let me just finish. So here are the 10 rules, and I will be happy to send these to anybody who wants them. I got to close, though. So I showed this picture before. This was our certification training. So this was in March of 1998. And you can see on the horizon those clouds. About five minutes after I took this picture, they, they opened up and it just started dumping snow. And it snowed about three inches in the span of about an hour. We still had 12 cars from, from this one back that needed to be done. And we finished them. 
And we were exhausted and tired and cold and wet and miserable and starving because we hadn't had a chance to get anything to eat. So there's a Chinese restaurant across the street called King Dragon, which had basically two dishes. There was stuff with white sauce and stuff with brown sauce. Um, and I said, let's go get Chinese. It's on me. So I treated everybody who had stuck it out to their horrible buffet lunch. Um, and at the end of the meal, we got fortune cookies. This is the best fortune I've ever gotten. This is the worst fortune I've ever gotten. So thank you so much for the opportunity. I'll stick around if there are questions. For faculty.